Well, good evening, everyone. It's exciting to get back to our Bible study in the book of Jeremiah. We are picking it up in chapter 21 tonight. If you need a Bible, just come on up and get one on the side over here on either side. <laughs> Does anybody need one? <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 21 tonight. Living Bible. Let's pray. That's right. <laughs> Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for uh, your written word, Lord, and uh, we pray, Lord, that it's written on our hearts and in our minds, Lord, and that, uh, Lord, as we spend time in your word, Lord, that it, uh, by your Holy Spirit, you change us, draw us closer to you, Lord, that you give us not only information tonight, but application in our lives, uh, that we might live lives that are honoring to you, Lord, and pleasing to you. We pray your blessing upon the kids downstairs as they're being taught the word, Lord, speak through the teachers and, and bless them, we pray. And bless our night, we pray. We give it to you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Now, understand the book of Jeremiah was not written in consecutive order. So in this particular prophecy, chapter 21, written to King Zedekiah, this actually takes place about six years after the prophecy of chapter 24. So we're jumping around just a little bit. Now, with that said, Jeremiah's message also will now change. Instead of being a, a general message, he's given specific messages in the next few chapters for various kings, for the people, and for the prophets. Now, when we last saw Jeremiah, which I think was a couple weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, he had been brutally uh, beaten for preaching in the temple. He'd been put uh, in stocks overnight, although he went on preaching with boldness. He was a little discouraged. He was disheartened, despairing of life itself. The people were, were mocking him because his predictions of Babylon coming against them to destroy their city, you know, were not coming to pass. And, and, and the very next thing you read that God wants you to know is that, that Jeremiah was right all along, that God was right all along. And so the Lord speaks to Jeremiah and, and, and encourages him. And, and look now, uh, we read that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is coming against uh, Judah. And, and so now the word, look at verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pashur the son of Melchiah and Zephaniah the son of Messiah, the priest, saying, Please inquire of the Lord for us. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful works that the king may go away from us. Now, Babylon came against Judah in three waves. The first group of captives came uh, to be led away to Babylon, including the prophet Daniel in 605 B.C. A few years later, 597 B.C., 10,000 captives, including the prophet Ezekiel, followed. And then our verses are said about 588 B.C., 18 months before the siege in which the city and the temple would be burned to the ground. So the Babylonians, they were forming a distant blockade, but they had not yet besieged the city. Zedekiah was, was not the king, not really. He was the governor that Nebuchadnezzar had appointed to run things. Zedekiah, however, thought 
that he could, you know, make himself allies with Egypt, rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. But see, that rebellion led to the destruction of, of the city. And on a side note, the pressure of these verses is different for sure than the chief of the temple police who had Jeremiah beaten or flogged and put in the stock that we saw last time. But now they're seeing Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, on his way to attack. Now they want to see God work. Now they want to see God move. Now they don't want to change their ways. They just want, uh, expect God to cover them. Oh, perhaps you God, it is goodness. He's going to cover us. What's Jeremiah's response? Look at verse 3. Jeremiah, then Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, with which you fight against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who besiege you outside the walls, and I will assemble them in the midst of the city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. I will strike the inhabitants of the city, both man and beast. They shall die of great pestilence. And afterwards, says the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, his servants and the people, and such as are left in the city from the pestilence and the sword and the famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those who seek their life. And he shall strike them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them or have pity or mercy. I'm sure Zedekiah is going, okay, that's not exactly what I wanted to hear. Not only is God going to allow the Babylonian troop to assemble right here in the middle of the city, but God himself is going to turn his hand against Israel. And all of this is because of their sin, that God is going to be against his own people in this battle. They needed to learn a lesson. King Zedekiah wanted to know if God was on his side. He should have been asking, was, was he on God's side? Look at verse 8. Now you shall say to this people, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life, and the way of death. Isn't that true always? That God sends before us the way of life and the way of death. When God placed Adam and Eve in that garden of Eden, God sent before them the way of life and the way of death. Two special trees in that garden. There was a tree of life and there, there was also the tree of the knowledge of good and, and evil, which also was the tree of death. And God said that in Genesis 2.17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for that day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. See, God gives to man a way of life or a way of death, and man so foolishly often takes the way of death. And I think it's true of every one of us tonight. God has laid before each of us tonight the way of life or the way of death. The Bible says the mind of the flesh is death. The mind of the spirit is life and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. You have our choice. You can live after the flesh. You can live, you know, that's the way of death. Or you can live after the spirit, that's the way of life perpetual story of God. Now look at verse 9. He goes on, He who remains in the city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence, but he who goes out and defects to the Chaldeans who beseech you, beseech you, he shall live and his life shall be a prize him. For I have set my face against the city for adversity and not for good, says the Lord. It shall be given into the hands of king of Babylon and he shall burn it with fire. Again, what a response to king Zedekiah. I mean, he thought you know, sought God's intervention. Jeremiah and the Lord said, up, oh, it's too late. The nation's judgment has been sealed. Jerusalem was going to be sacked and burned. And God says, the only way really to save lives if you defect to the enemy. Now think about that. That had to be a difficult message for Jeremiah to deliver. You know, he, he was a Jewish patriot. He loved his nation. 
And for a time he preached, turn to God and God will deliver you. But now their only hope is, from what the Lord says, is to surrender. God is now fighting with the Babylonians against, against them. And so think about this. Jeremiah was saying, obedience to God is now to commit national treason. Even though you love your country, when it becomes apparent God is on the other side, you need to follow God and not what's going on in the country. Something we should think about. Verse 11. And concerning the house of the king of Judah, say, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. Thus says the Lord, execute judgment in the morning and deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor, lest my fury go forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Again, Jeremiah is calling on King Zedekiah to, to issue a formal declaration of surrender to the Babylonians. It's the only way that, that they're going to be spared. Judgment is coming. Look at verse 13. Behold, I'm against you, O inhabitant, o inhabitant of the valley and rock of their plain, says the Lord, who say, Who shall come down against us? Who shall enter our dwelling? But I will punish you according to the fruit of your doing, says the Lord. I will kindle a fire in its forest, and it shall devour all things around it. Now, as we come to chapter 22, the final four kings of Judah are about to be condemned by the prophet Jeremiah. Look at verses 1 through 4. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah, and there speak the word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, execute judgment and righteousness, and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor, do no wrong or do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you indeed do this thing, then shall enter the gates of this house, riding on horses and in chariots, accompanied by servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of David. Now, here, even at this late date, God is still holding out to the king the offer of deliverance. And God said, you know, again, he said, I, I set before you life and death. No, they're really, at this point, they're on the gallows. You know, the rope is around their neck. They're ready for the floor to come out from under them. And God is still saying, look, if you just do what is right, if you only have righteous judgments, if you just seek to, to deliver the fatherless, the widow, the poor that, that you oppress, if you only do what is right, then, then I'll continue this dynasty, this kingdom. There'll be kings that'll be able to go in and go out and sit upon the throne. And, 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 and all you have to do is turn around and just stop the way you're going even now. But verse 5, but if you'll not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. No other higher point, authority that God can swear by than himself. And this was really a radical, radical warning that they would have understood completely. Because if you were a Jew and you're waiting for your Messiah, this prophecy would make the hair in the back of your neck stand up. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 11 through 13, David is told this. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The Jews understood that to be the Messiah, to be the, the eternal king. Yet if God makes good on this thread here, and determines that Solomon's dynasty, in other words, this house does become the desolation, as it says there in verse 5. What's going to happen to the promised Messiah? How will, how will he ever sit upon the throne? 
And I'm sure at this point, Satan must have laughed himself, assuming that God, in his anger, was about to shoot himself in his foot. He was about to cut off the promised Messiah and ultimately our hope of salvation. Wrong, as we'll see at the end of this chapter. Look at verses 6 through 12 now. For thus said the Lord to the house of the king of Judah, You are Gilead to me, the head of Lebanon. Yet I surely will make you a wilderness, cities which are not inhabited. I will prepare destroyers against you, everyone with his weapons. They shall cut down your choice cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations will pass by the city, and everyone will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord done so to this great city? Then they will answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God, and worship other gods and serve them. Weep not for the dead, nor bemoan him. Weep bitterly for him who goes away, for he shall return no more, nor shall see his native country. For thus is the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah's father, who went from this place. He shall not return there anymore, but he shall die in the place where they have led him captive and shall see this land no more. See, at this time, the world's superpowers were, were gathered together for a showdown. Babylon was on the rise. Egypt and Assyria had allied to oppose Babylon's advance. And it all came to, to, to boil here at the Syrian frontier, a place called Carchemish. But to this pharaoh, uh, to get there, rather to get there, this pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh Nicola, moved his troops north through Judah. Now, King Josiah tried to help Babylon and went to oppose Necho. He was warned, but didn't back off Josiah, then bad, died in that bad, battle in the Valley of Megiddo. Now, this Shalom was another name for Josiah's son, Jehoahaz. He took the throne in his father's place, but he was just as anti-Egyptian as, as, as Josiah. That's why verse 11 says, He shall not return her anymore, but he shall die in the place where they had led, led him captive, and shall see this land no more. See, Pharaoh Necho unseated King Jehoahaz and took him to Egypt as a prisoner. And you see, he'd only ruled in Judah only three months in his place. Necho put another of Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, on the throne. Jehoahaz's brother reigned 11 years from 609 to 597 B.C. And this is where now that Jehoiakim becomes the subject of the next few verses. Look at verse 13. Speaking of him, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. See, there's nothing wrong, you know, with building a palace as long as you pay your workers. But here, King Jehoiakim, he's in big trouble. Now, God is like a union boss, you know. If you work, you should get paid. Leviticus 19.13 laid down the law, you shall not defraud your neighbor nor rob him. In the context of the prohibition is that of, of paying wages, and, and that's what the Lord is saying here. So verse, t, verse 14, woe to says, who says, I will build myself a white house with spacious chambers and cut out windows for it, paneling with cedar and painting it with, with vermilion, which is a, a brilliant red. Now he's saying, hey, I'm going to build myself a house. I mean, it's going to be on HGTV. I mean, it's going to be a house with the special windows in it. It's going to be all the fine stuff in it. Then the Lord says in verse 15, shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Was not this knowing me, says the Lord? See, Josiah had been obedient to God. He did justly. He did rightly. That, that's why Josiah had reigned for three decades. But ultimately, Josiah's righteousness stemmed from the fact that he knew God. He had the knowledge of God. And it was revealed by his compassion for the poor and the needy. Now, Jehoiakim, his son, on the other hand, man, he, he wasn't the same as his dad. He wanted a big red cedar palace for himself. It was all about him. 
What's even worse than that is that he wanted it during a time when Judah was clearly in decline and he wanted it for free. For free. So, so to accomplish his own personal building project, what he wanted, he oppressed his subjects, a total lack of compassion that his father had. And that's what the Lord is saying here. Probably one of the, the, the biggest stumbling blocks when it comes to compassion is, is materialism and, and really coveting the things of this world. If you're covetousness, you're not going to be moved with compassion to help give to others around you. That's one of the reasons the Apostle John can say in 1 John 3.17, whoever has this, this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? The point is that, that, that Jesus cares about a person's stomach as well as his souls and then providing for them. And so did Josiah. But Jehoiakim, on the other hand, not like his dad. Verse 17, the Lord says, Yet your eyes... And your heart are for nothing but your covetousness, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. And he'll tell him, because of the way in which you've treated others, no one's going to mourn you when you're gone. Look at verse 18. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, my brother, or alas, my sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, master, alas, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of a donkey, dragged and cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. You may not know this, but it's been thought that King Tut was actually buried with his donkey. Just a side note here. Archaeologists tell us that animals are often found in Egyptian tombs. Most commonly, they're pets like dogs and cats and monkeys. These animals are carefully mummified along with their owners. The only evidence we have, however, that King Tut was buried with his donkey are the lyrics to a now ancient song, a fragment that reads, Buried with a donkey, Funky Tut, he's my favorite honky, born in Arizona, moved to Babylon, King Tut. For those of you that are old, you remember Steve Martin. <laughs> old Steve Martin song. He may not have been born, you know, buried with his donkey, but Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, was to be buried with the burial of a donkey. Just a side note. The idea here is that when Jehoiakim died, he wouldn't be buried, but would be thrown out really into the garbage heap. We're told in Second Chronicles 36.6 that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him, bound him in bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon where he eventually died. Nothing is said of his funeral or where he was buried, which is indication that he was just, just thrown out, just like the Lord said, buried with the burial of a donkey. Verse 20. Go up to Lebanon and cry out and lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry from Abarim for your, all your lovers are destroyed. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said I will not hear. This has been your manner from your youth that you did not obey my voice. And how many times have have people in their prosperity turned away from God? And God speaks to them, but they're not listening. God here says, this has been your case from the beginning. You just won't obey my voice. God, help us to, you know, that this is not the case in our own lives. As God has, has spoken to us over and over through his word. God has declared to us how we should walk, how we should live, how we should walk, follow the spirit, not the flesh. And when God gives us so many warnings of perils of the, the flesh-dominated life, God help us that we don't, you know, go down that path. God help us if we become covetous, if we become greedy, if we get to the point where we start taking advantage of people because of our, our position, our title. You know, I, I got this and, and, and you know, I'm going to do this. So if we take advantage of people, our, our, our title, you know, to our own personal advantage. You know, I'm going to build me a house as this king did um, you know, and, and stuff like that. That's why Jesus said in Mark ten forty three and 44, but among you it will be different. 
Whoever wants to be a leader among you, you must be a servant. And whoever wants to be first among you, you must be the slave of everyone. The Lord says, I spoke to you in, your, in prosperity, but you didn't listen to me. Look at verse 22. The wind shall eat up all your rulers, and your lovers shall go into captivity. Surely then you will be ashamed and humiliated for all your wickedness. O inhabitant of Lebanon, make your nest in the cedars. How gracious will you be when pangs come upon you, like the pain of a woman in labor. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. This man the Lord calls uh, Coniah was Jehoiakim's son. His proper name was Jehoiachin, which means Jehovah will establish. But addressing him here, God drops the prefix Jehoiah, an abbreviation of God's name Jehovah. And this is telling, this is telling, this is revealing. God is deliberately saying, hey, this guy, I don't want him associated with me anymore. I don't want him, don't want him associated with my name. Mind you, the story of Alexander the Great, he was inspecting his troops when he came upon a soldier who was just kind of lazy and, and just had a bad attitude, and, and the general asked his name. And he sheeply responded, Alexander. Well, the general leaped from his horse, grabbed the soldier, and started shaking him. He said, young man, either change your attitude or change your name. The general didn't want him to share the same name with, with this man. And I, and I think about that. I hope that the Lord is not, you know, doesn't feel that way about us. We call ourselves Christians. But Jesus said, either change your name or change your attitude. And this is how God felt about Coniah. God won't have this man sitting on the throne. God would rather not have a king and that to, than to be represented by him. So the Lord says, look at verse 25. And I'll give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those who face you, face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I'll cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you, you shall die. But to the land to which they desire to return, there they shall not return. So Jehoiachin, or Coniah, lived 37 years in Babylon and died there just as God said he would. And he actually outlived the king who, who took his place, Zedekiah. And throughout the king Zedekiah's tenure, false prophets kept predicting that Coniah would return to the land. Oh, he's going to come back. He's going to take his throne. Never happened. Why? Because God said so. You shall not return. Verse 28. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol? Yes, he is. A vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he, he and his own descendants, and cast into the land which they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. That's pretty heavy. Jehoiachin did have sons, but it would be as if he didn't have any sons. He was childless because none of his sons sat on the throne. Uh, Jehoiachin was succeeded by Zedekiah, an uncle, not a son. Jehoiachin did, however, have a famous and godly grandson, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, if you recall, was the first group of Jews, led the first group of Jews from home from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem. But, but Zerubbabel was a Persian governor. He never attempted to be their king. See, God had promised David that he and his son Solomon would never lack an heir to their throne. He promised that, after, that their kingdom shall be eternal. That meant that the Messiah was to, was to be born during David's lineage and come through the royal line of King Solomon. But here in chapter Jeremiah 22, God curses the bloodline of Jehoiakim and thus the bloodline of Solomon. And for centuries, this has baffled the Jewish rabbis. Why did God sabotage his own promise of salvation? And I hope for us it comes as no surprise that God knew exactly what he was doing. He was identifying the Messiah with undeniable certainty. 
God was setting the stage so that Jesus would be the only man qualified for the job. If you've studied the genealogies in the New Testament, you understand this. First in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, Matthew's a Jew, he's a Levite, wanted to prove Jesus' Messiahship. So he traced the lineage of Jesus from Abraham to David, through Solomon, to, to Jehoiachin, all the way to Joseph, Jesus' stepdad. He established that Jesus was the royal heir. The second genealogy is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. Luke was a Gentile. Luke's uh, concern was Messiah's humanity, so he traced Jesus' lineage all the way back from, from the first man, Adam, to Abraham, to David. But rather than through Solomon, he takes a left, a detour to, to, through the, uh, apart from the cursed land of Jehoiachin, and goes from David to another son, Nathan, to uh, Jesus' mother, Mary. So when you put these two genealogies together, the genius of our great God becomes evident. As Joseph's stepson, Jesus was first born in his family and entitled to his father's legal rights, which included royal secession. But because Jesus was virgin born, he didn't have Joseph's blood and avoided this blood curse placed upon Jehoiachin. This means that, that Jesus is David and Solomon's legal heir through Joseph, but he is David's natural heir through Mary, who descended from another of David's son, Nathan. Again, not Solomon. Again, avoided the, the curse. It's very cool. If Jesus had only been born through the line of Joseph, and thus of Jehoiakim, he would not have been qualified to reign on the throne of David in the millennium. So when God curses the house of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim or Coniah, Satan and the demons laughed, Maybe the rabbis gasped, but what appeared to be a divine gaffe was God's last laugh. You see, this was a means of pinpointing exactly the identity of his Messiah. There, the Bethlehem manger, all the pieces came together, the puzzle was solved. The only person that could possibly fit all of this Messiah is Jesus Christ. Okay, chapter 23. This is the last chapter we'll get tonight. It's kind of a long one, but we have time for it. Before we get to verse 1, I have to say this. You know, we have the technology today, and I love it, you know, you know, that Google and Siri, you know, if, if you got to go someplace, hey, I need directions too. And you ask for it. In the olden days, not too long ago, you know, you'd have a map and you take out your map, you know, and, and you'd figure it out and you look at the signs and then you have to go back to the map and all of that. Now we just listen to that voice that says, turn here, turn there, you know, and, and you know, and, and you're going through, it says, turn right now as you're going through the intersection. Ah, I should have turned right then. You know, and I've been in situations where rather than listening to Google or Siri, it's easier just to follow that guy in front of you. You know, okay, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if they're going to be, I'm just going to follow you. Have you ever done that? I'm just going to follow you. And the first green light that the guy comes to, I mean, it turns yellow and he goes right through it. Now you have a choice. Either you're going to run the red light or you're going to stop. So you stop. So does he stop and wait for you? Of course not, you know. Primal instincts take over, and, and what he's learned over the centuries kicks in, and he sees that yellow light, he takes off, and, and he's gone. Can't follow him. Well, chapter 23 is about following. God presents himself to Judah as a shepherd. And as their sheep, you know, they, they ought to have heard his voice and followed him. They did not and were being scattered. Not to worry, he would regather them and bring them into his pasture. And as Christians, we know, Jesus is our, our shepherd, in the Gospel of John, he called himself the Good Shepherd. Then he says, we as sheep, we hear his voice and we'll follow him. Well, we should follow him. There are times we don't, and sometimes we hear him, but for a million reasons, we lag behind or we, we go in some direction of our own choosing. And it's too bad because when you follow the Lord, it, it, it is green pastures. He, he, it's always, his grass is greener. He knows what he's doing. Well, here, the Lord has his under-shepherds. 
those who are supposed to lead the people and they're to follow him to, to keep their eyes on the Lord. But sadly, they took some side roads and clearly they were leading the people astray, leading them in the wrong direction. And this is where we come to these verses in, in, in verses 1 and 2, chapter 23, where the Lord says, Woe to you guys! You're misleading my people. Look at verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, against the shepherds who feed my people. Now this, the shepherds would also include the, the, the kings, the city officials, the priests, the prophets. He says, you have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. Well, the king and his court had failed to listen to God. And his prophecy led directly to God's people being taken away to Babylon. And God here says, I'm going to judge those leaders. I'm going to judge those under shepherds for it. I will attend to you for the evil of your doing, says the Lord. But he says in verse 3, But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. Yeah, I'm going to punish those that misled my people. But for my people, the, the next generations to follow, they're going to one day return to the land. They're going to be regathered into the land. And notice the scope of this prophecy. This is not simply talking about the, the Jews who returned from Babylon uh, exile in 535 B.C. It said this speaks of the Jews who are returning from all countries, it says there, where I've driven them in verse 3. Well, the Bible is, is, is clear that there's going to be a couple regatherings of the Jews. The first was the return of Babylon. It occurred in three waves. Zerubbabel returned to rebuild the temple. Ezra came to rebuild the people. And Nehemiah came to, to, to rebuild the walls. But the second regathering of the Jews to Judah is referred to in Isaiah 11.11. 11. It says there, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. So when they returned from Babylon, they lived in the land for another 600 years, all the way up until 70 A.D until the Romans then burned Jerusalem and scattered many of the remaining Jews. And this began a period of Jewish history known as the Dispora, or the Jewish Dispersion. Now that lasted for almost 1,900 years. For almost 1,900 years, the Jews had been scattered around the globe until May 14, 1948. For the only second time in the history, another regathering took place and continues to take place. You know, in 1948, there were 700,000 Jews in Israel. In 1980, the number had swelled to 3.2 million in 2000, there were 5 million. And today, in 2019, the number of Jews in Israel is around 6.5 million. They're returning to the land. And here's the point. The Bible doesn't predict, you know, four and five and six regatherings of the Jews into the land. The Bible mentions two. I mean, you could say three, but two, 535 B.C., 948 A.D., and then at the time of his second coming of the Lord to establish his kingdom. See, this is one of those prophecies that all point, I believe, to the return of Jesus Christ in our lifetime. That he's coming soon. And verse 4, it says, At that time, I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Well, who are these shepherds? Well, we know who they are because Jesus told us, his, uh, told his 12 disciples in Matthew 19, 28, he said, I assure you that when the world is made new, and the Son of Man sits upon his glory throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So there you have your future shepherds. Look at verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, 
a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Here's another one of those cloud partings, sun shining through verses, promising the Messiah is coming. The, the Bible speaks of the Messiah as being a branch from David's family tree. But unlike Jehoiakim, who was an evil branch, Messiah is a branch of righteousness. I love that. He's a branch of righteousness. His roots are righteousness. His limbs are holiness. His fruit is love and mercy. Rather than a cursed king with cursed blood, this coming king, he's going to rule forever. Verse 6 says, In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord or righteousness. Or in Hebrew, Jehovah Sittenu. Or Jehovah or righteousness. See, Jesus is both uh, Jehovah God and our righteousness. And through Jesus, Judah will be saved. It's one act on the cross. Jesus fulfilled God's holy demands and at the same time extended to us God's mercy. And I love that. Jehovah Sitkinu, Jehovah our righteousness. One of several names of God in the Bible. Genesis 22, 14. Jehovah Jireh, Lord our, will provide. Exodus fifteen twenty six, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord heals. Exodus seventeen fifteen, Jehovah Nisi, Lord my banner. Judges 6, 24, Jehovah Shalom, Lord my peace. Psalm 23, 1, Jehovah Ra, Lord my shepherd. Ezekiel 48, 35, Jehovah Shammah, Lord is present. There's more, but just, just to know some of these, uh, these names and addressing God when you have these particular needs. And if you have a, the need, you're, you're, the rent's due, and oh Lord, you're Jehovah Jireh, you're our provider. If your soul is troubled and you're worried and, and you need some peace, oh, Jehovah Shalom, Lord, you are my peace. If, if you're sick and you're not feeling well, oh, Lord, Jehovah Rapha, you are the Lord that heals. It strengthens our faith to remember who our God is, what He does. Okay, verse 7. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, you brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives, you brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I have driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. And here God is speaking that day of future restoration that shall come to pass when Jesus comes again. And, and we know that the angels will be sent to the four corners of the earth to gather God's elect, the Jews from all the areas which they've been scattered, and God will bring them back. And that day, all of Israel will be saved. Verse 9, Jeremiah states, My heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man and like a man whom wine is overcome because of the Lord and because of his holy words. Remember Jeremiah's the weeping prophet here. He's saying, my heart within me is broken because of the prophets. But even worse, he's weeping because of verse 10. For the land is full of adulterers. For because of the curse, the land mourns. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up. Their course of life is evil and their might is not right. For both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, in my house I have found their wickedness, said the Lord. Therefore their way shall be to them like slippery ways. In the darkness they shall be driven on and fall in them. For I will bring disaster on them the year of their punishment, says the Lord. The problem was that the nation was a reflection of what was occurring in God's house. The prophets, the priests, they all became corrupt. You know, I, I think the same can be said for America. When the church becomes corrupt and there's adultery and fornication and misappropriation of funds and all that sorts of evil things, I mean, the country is just going to follow suit. I don't know if you saw this. I tried to find it. I saw it a couple of days ago, but I tried to find it tonight. I, I saw an article recently showing a picture of pastors and ministers all gathered together in support of the abortion, abortion law in New York. I thought, man, how far down have we come? 
Here the Lord says the prophets and priests have become corrupt and God says he's going to hold them accountable. Verse 13, continuing to speak of the false prophets. And I've seen folly in the prophets of Samaria that prophesied by Baal and, and caused my people Israel to err. Also I've seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They also strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like Sodom to me and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. In other words, he's saying the prophets are no better than the prophets of Baal. They've compromised their devotion to God. They've committed spiritual adultery with idols. And and rather than, than proclaiming the truth, they're speaking lies. The Lord says that their spiritual infidelity was just as offensive as Sodom and Gomorrah's sexual sin to them. Therefore, verse 15, here comes justice. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with wormwood, and I make them drink the water of gall. For, for them, the prophet of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone out into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me, The Lord has said, You shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. See, they're prophesying lies, misdirecting the people. Oh, it doesn't matter how you live. I mean, God will accept you. God doesn't really care that if you live after your flesh. It doesn't regard the, you don't regard the law. Listen, just peace. You're going to have peace. No, the Lord says, watch out. Evil is going to come upon you. You know... Again, today, sadly, many churches, there's really no strong preaching of the word. People go in and go out and comfort, even though they continue to walk in sin after their own lust. I mean, to go to a church and, and come out feeling very comforted without any real conviction of sin, there's a problem going on here. There's no real preaching of righteousness or holiness before God. And that's a tragic thing because people are being comforted in the evil ways, being lulled into this false sense of security. No, it's the same thing that's going on that, that we read in Jeremiah. A lot of pastors today, you know, you see it, they redefine hell. Well, all the hell you're going to experience is what's right here on earth, and, and all the heaven you're ever going to get is right here on earth. There's no future judgment, and, and there's pastors that make, make fun and scoff at the idea of hell. Sure do they say it was said in verse 7, you should have peace. No, the Lord says, evil will come upon you. Paul talks about that in First Thessalonians 5.3, where it says, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Jeremiah goes on to say something similar. Look at verse 18. For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and has perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury, a violent whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days you will understand it perfectly. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. See, Jeremiah was not afraid to speak God's truth. God's anger and judgment was coming on the wicked like a whirlwind of fury storm. Everything will not be okay. And the prophets who were claiming to be speaking for God, he says they were not speaking for God at all. Listen, that needs to be emphasized, I think, to emphasize to every new believer. Not everybody who says they speak for God really speaks for God. Verse 22, but if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned them from their evil way and from their evil of doings. And I'm a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off. Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see them? Says the Lord, do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord. Again, if they would have turned, God would have healed them and forgiven them. 
Listen, God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. You cannot run from God. In the same way, there's no such thing as a, as a secret sin when it comes to God. God sees everything we do. If you're hiding something from God, God sees it. So the Lord is saying, I see it. Watch out for these false prophets. Look at verse 25. I've heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I've dreamed, I've dreamed. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesied lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart, who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbor as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. One of the way a false prophet, you know, manipulates and intimidates God's people is by appealing to the supernatural. Uh, I had this dream. Uh, I had this, this vision. And you hear ministers today, I've heard it. I had a dream and it was people from all over were supporting my ministry by, by donating cash. Kenneth Copeland, you know, I had a vision from the Lord. He wants me flying on a new private jet, $6 million, $600 million. And, uh, uh, the Lord has given me that vision and He wants you to help bring that vision to pass. You may have a dream, but it's a pipe dream, okay? It's not something that God's given to you. I'm always leery of people and they say, well, I've had this dream. I've had this vision, especially if it concerns me. You know, not that I don't believe that God speaks in such ways. I know that he does. He has in my life. But what I do know is that God, first and foremost, has spoken us through his word. And I take it right back to, to God's word. Show me in the book, chapter and verse, if it goes along with God's word, then I'll listen to what you have to say. Paul wrote it to the Galatians in Galatians 1.8. He says, but if, even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. I mean, if some angel sits on the foot of your bed and contradicts what's written in God's word, let him be accursed. Let you be really freaked out, but let him be accursed. Be careful about dreams. Do you hear the one about the fellow who told his friend, I dreamed that I ate a giant marshmallow. His friend said, let me guess, you woke up and ate your pillow. It was gone. No, he said, I woke up and one of my giant marshmallows were gone. <laughs> Verse 28. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff of the wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I'm against the prophet, says the Lord, who steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Behold, I'm against the prophet, says the Lord, who use their tongues and say, he says, Behold, I'm against those who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord, and tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their recklessness. Yet I did not send them or command them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, says the Lord. God says, as the chaff is to, to the wheat, so is a dream to God's word. The guy with the dream, oh, he'll ooh and how cry, oh, wow, this dream. God, God said this and God said that. And everyone's all impressed with their super spirituality and he, he draws a crowd. But in reality, it's just like, you know, a highway accident. People just have to look. They have to, to, to look at it. But the guy who seriously, methodically teaches the word of God, they may not draw a huge crowd, but they'll get the truth of God's word to the people of God. I love verse 29. Says it's not my word is not my word like a fire says the Lord and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. I like that. A dream, a vision. It's like a, a morning dew. You know, the, the, the summer sun burns it off around noon. But when the sun does its job, it's gone. It's burned off. Has no lasting impact. But God's word, it's like a fire. 
It's powerful. It can warm up a cold house. It can light up a dark road. Lord says His word's like a hammer. Makes a point. Man, it can break that stony heart or, or dash the toughest doubts. But woe, verse 30 says to the false prophets, who says, who steal my words, every one from his neighbor. I mean, nothing is worse than to rob people from the word of God. To not give them the word of God. Verse 33. So when these people of the prophet of the priest ask you, saying, what is the oracle of the Lord? An oracle is a, a spontaneous utterance originating from the spiritual world, a, a supernatural communique, so to speak. So when they ask, what is the oracle of the Lord? What is the dream that you have? You should say to them, what oracle? I will even forsake you, says the Lord. And as for the prophet and the priest and the people who say, the oracle of the Lord, I will even punish that man in his house. Thus every one of you shall say to his neighbor and every one to his brother, what has the Lord answered? And what has the Lord spoken? And the oracle of the Lord you shall mention no more, for every man's word will be his oracle. For you have perverted the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. You want to know what the Lord has spoken? Read his word. Don't rely on these divine oracles, these false prophets keep propagating the perverted the word of the living God. Finally, verse 37. Thus you shall say to the prophet, what, the Lord answered you, what has the Lord answered you and what has the Lord spoken? But since you say the oracle of the Lord, therefore thus is the Lord. Because you say this word, the oracle of the Lord, I have sent to you saying, do not say the oracle of the Lord. Therefore, behold, I even I will utterly forget you and forsake you. <laughs> and the city that I gave you and your fathers will cast you out of my presence and I will bring an everlasting reproach upon you and a perpetual shame which shall not be forgotten. What a place to end. <laughs> In short, prophets who claim to speak for God but speak against His word and His will to, to foster their own agenda, they're going to be put to shame. They're going to be forgotten. Who are these false prophets that, that Jeremiah is talking about? They were big names in their own day. Who are they now? Don't know. They're forgotten. Hey, but we know Jeremiah. We know Habakkuk. We know Daniel. We know Ezekiel. We know the men of God and the men of God's word. They, their names will never be forgotten. But those who speak the name of God, a message that was not from God, see ya, your history. It's only through God's word that we can see clearly. That's why we preach the word, as Paul says in Second Timothy 4. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with law, long-suffering, and teaching. That's what will change our lives. It's the word of God that works in and through our lives. Well, tonight, as we close, tonight, um, got a special thing going on at 10 o'clock tonight uh, in Pakistan, which would be 9 o'clock uh, Thursday morning. They have a, a, like a leadership conference going on, and they ask what cost to, uh, to share a message. And so, and they also asked me to share a message. So tonight from 10 to 11, uh, Wakasa is going to share a message. And from 11 to midnight, I'm sharing a message. I think it's probably the latest Bible study I've ever ever shared before. But it's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. So I, I share the message that, you know, I, I share a talk and then Wakasa is going to interpret. So uh, we may be here till 2 o'clock in the morning. But uh, no, I, I try to cut it down short. But uh, just be praying for that. I mean, praying. I, I want to encourage the church there. Uh, what I shared in, in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, just to preach the word in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Stay the course. That's a prayer for, for our church. That's a prayer for this, these folks that, that we're going to meet tonight. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word. I know we covered a lot in a short amount of time. Lord, I pray that that helps us to have a, 
just give us a taste, Lord, that we may want to dig in deeper to some of these truths that you've given to us, Lord, on our own. And seek to, to see uh, uh, your heart in, in other areas that maybe we have not have covered tonight. But we thank you for what we see, Lord. We thank you that we can see the importance of your word. The warning against those that would, would uh, teach falsely, Lord, and, and claim to be teaching, speaking for you, but, but are not, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that we can see your amazing grace and mercy on these people who, Lord, if they would have just turned and stopped the direction they were going, you would have forgiven them, you would have healed their land, you would have restored them, but they continue to walk down that path of disobedience. They continue to choose death instead of life. Help us, Lord, not to walk in the flesh, not to walk in death, but to walk in the Spirit and life each and every moment of our lives that we might bring you glory and honor and praise in everything that we do. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this night. Pray again for tonight, Lord, for this conference that's going on in Pakistan, that you would bless it, anoint it, anoint the teaching, and that you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.